there is one relationship in your life that is always on the edge. If it isn't unhealthy now, you're only a step or two away. It's a relationship that you will always have, and it's one that's probably more dangerous than any other in your life. If you're not vigilant and you lack intentionality, you'll find yourself out of control and tragically enslaved. And if you ask others for help, you might get five different pieces of relationship advice from five different people. That relationship? You and money. Now, I'll admit, that was a bit melodramatic. In some ways, money is mundane. It's every day. We earn, we spend. But if I'm honest, I hardly think that it's possible to overstate the importance of our relationship with money. The issue of our relationship with money is littered across the Bible. Hundreds, even thousands of verses in the Old Testament and the New, offering wisdom and warnings in this important relationship. So it begs the question, what kind of relationship do I have with money? Is it a healthy one? Unhealthy? What does a healthy relationship with money even look like? Stick around and we'll try and answer these questions for followers of Jesus seeking to be faithful with money. Welcome to the 12th and final episode of Season 2 of Breadcrumbs, our youth ministry podcast at Bread of Life Church. I'm Jason Lowe, the youth minister at Bread of Life. Throughout 2020, we have been talking about the theme, sacred versus secular. Though we don't always use these terms, we often think in these categories. We can keep things simple by labeling certain activities as sacred or secular. But when we do that, we can implicitly spiritualize or spurn certain activities or ideas without thinking about it deeply enough. Could it be that keeping things simple in this way hurts our faith? Well, in this final episode of 2020, we are considering the issue of money and riches and what our attitude as Christians should be toward this monumental topic. From an early age, we are exposed to the influence of money. We observe what money affords us if we have it, and we observe how a lack of money limits us if we don't. Money reaches into nearly every aspect of our existence, as conversations about government, education, sports, music, housing, transportation, nutrition, art, entertainment, and even church inevitably move into what are often heated discussions about finances. We've all observed from afar or experienced firsthand the ways that money can consume and ruin what it touches. And even the world at large understands the danger of money. 
I would take a chance and say that most non-Christians have heard or even quoted themselves, and sometimes incorrectly, 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it's an issue we must talk about, and an issue we must approach with extreme intentionality if we want to be faithful. We might say that money is the ultimate issue for our theme, sacred versus secular. We, we can't reject the idea of money as secular, nor does the Bible endorse such a notion. But in no other area are we more at risk for succumbing to the secular and God-forsaken ideas than we are with money. It's important. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus warns his disciples, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money has mastered our world, and much about our world revolves around money. As Christians, we are called to be mastered by something, or rather, someone else. As I noted earlier, the Bible has plenty to say about money. Too much, in fact. More than we have time to reflect on. So to simplify, I'm going to list five temptations or lies that we believe about money. And for each, we'll see how the Bible exposes the bankruptcy of the idea. So let's dive in. The first temptation is the idea that money makes us secure. And in a church like ours, Bread of Life, we are terribly tempted to trust in the security of our riches to meet our needs in this life. We save enough until we have enough to weather any storm. Our money purchases insurance because it's a sound financial move that insulates us from the monetary impact of life's unexpected disasters. And what's most insidious about this particular lie is that the Bible offers wisdom about the prudence of sound financial choices that includes saving and making provision to provide for our needs. So it's not merely the act of saving money or purchasing insurance, making money choices to meet our needs, both expected and unexpected, that's a problem. Rather, it's where we place our trust and our hope. You see, we are tempted to trust in our riches to save us. But Proverbs 11.28 pulls the rug from under that idea. It reads, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous shall flourish as the green leaf. The entirety of Proverbs 11 is about the dishonest pursuit of wealth. It exposes the folly of pursuing wealth at the expense of righteousness. And here in verse 28, the contrast is stark. The two types of people presented are those who trust in riches and those who are righteous. As if those two types of people are mutually exclusive. 
One person cannot be both. But I think this odd contrast is exactly the point. Trusting our security to our wealth means that we are not trusting our security to our Creator. And as I said earlier, this is a difficult balance to find, to act wisely in our finances while leaving our security to God and His plan. I hope that my suggestions at the end of our episode will offer help in achieving that balance. But for now, money does not make us secure. Don't believe that it does. The second temptation is the idea that money makes us self-sufficient. In what is maybe a corollary to money, the idea that money makes us secure, we are tempted to use our money and purchasing power to take care of ourselves without the need for any help. We become quick to act as benefactors, ones who offer help, and we're slow to act as beneficiaries, ones who ask or receive help. We find honor in not needing anything from anyone, and we cherish opportunities to be generous. But just as with the lie of security, the lie of self-sufficiency threatens us from something that is, indeed, a good thing. There's no honor in poverty and in constantly failing to meet our own needs, and there is honor in acting generously with what we have. But this should not lead us to the conclusion that we are self-sufficient. On the contrary, Paul reasons with the citizens of Athens in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, where he says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And then later in verse 28, he continues and says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, the lie is not that having enough to meet our needs or acting generously with our money is wrong. It's that being in such a position means that we are self-sufficient. It's just not true. Every human is created and dependent on their creator. And that is a truth that never changes no matter how big our bank account. If God causes kings and kingdoms to rise and fall, then we should harbor no illusions that our riches, that we can stand on our own. Money does not make us self-sufficient. Don't believe that it does. The third temptation is the idea that money makes us successful. We describe our companies as a ladder, and it's a good thing, something worthy of congratulations, to move up that ladder. And moving up the ladder means more authority, more responsibility, and more money. Sometimes we talk about whether or not a particular job has room for growth, By that, we mean whether or not we can develop our professional skills, 
gain greater responsibility in the company, and increase our salary. We talk about entry-level jobs and starter homes. And if we are doing well, if we are successful in our jobs and in life, we move past those things, which means we have more money. It's not hard to see how more money is associated with success. But Jesus, as he was explaining the cost of discipleship, offers a different idea of success. In Mark 8.36, he says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The different idea of success is reinforced when Jesus in Luke 12 is about to tell the parable of a rich man who spent his life accumulating riches. He offers the foundation for the parable in verse 15, which reads, Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So according to Jesus, the success of someone's life has little to do with how rich they are. Instead, in Jesus' eyes, success has everything to do with your devotion, faithfulness, and obedience to God. Success is a heart that will sacrifice anything for Jesus and an attitude that generously gives to the kingdom of God. And as with the other lies, the challenge is recognizing where exercising wisdom leads us to sin and idolatry. Doing well and reaching excellence may earn us more money, but we must guard against the idea that this equals success. Instead, we need to see and seek the success of Jesus. Money does not make us successful. Don't believe that it does. The fourth temptation that we'll talk about is the idea that money makes us significant. In James 2, we find a warning about showing favoritism to rich people in our churches, that we shouldn't do it. It's a penetrating insight, isn't it? We're tempted to treat those with great riches as more valuable or more significant than those who have little. So on the flip side, if we ourselves have great riches, we are often treated as someone of significance. People and organizations seek us out to earn our support, to gain our wisdom. We are most interested in the stories of the obscenely wealthy and the secrets of those who have made themselves exceedingly rich. But Psalm 49, 16-20 warns us to be careful with this lie. It says, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases. For they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. When our significance boils down to our wealth, 
This psalm compares us to an ignorant beast who dies. Dead, without any glory or weight to our name. And we are warned, as we are in James 2, to take care not to give glory to others for the sake of their wealth. Money does not make us significant. Don't believe that it does. The final temptation we'll discuss is the idea that money makes us satisfied. Now, my guess is that few of us would say this to ourselves. We don't really believe that a satisfied life is a life with a lot of money. And this isn't something only Christians believe or say. It seems to be almost universally accepted that money won't satisfy us. So why would this be important to mention? Well, it's for a good reason. It's because we are tempted to believe that security, self-sufficiency, success, and significance will satisfy us. Yes, the same security, self-sufficiency, success, and significance we are tempted to believe comes with more money. But as we saw, money does not bring us any of those things. Money does not make us satisfied. Be careful you don't actually believe that it does. Think about the impact that money can have on sports or on music or on education or on politics or on church or on family. Money reaches into every area of society and our lives. Everywhere we turn, the issue of money stares us in the face. We can't avoid it, and its temptations will constantly bombard us, luring us to love it when we shouldn't, hoping it will promise us things that it can't. With that in mind, I want to leave you with one final passage that I think gives us a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship we should have with money, a healthy relationship. And then, based on that passage, I will suggest two ways we can develop and maintain that relationship. And it comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What can you do to lay a strong foundation? Well, here are two suggestions. First, don't be foolish, but take risks. Don't be foolish, 
but take risks. A fool buys what they can't afford and spends for today without a thought about tomorrow. Minimizing debt and saving for the future are healthy habits, but we can take it too far, always staking our future on the size of our bank accounts. Take some risks. And by that, I don't mean gamble your money or toss it into an investment, hoping you'll hit it big. I mean, look for opportunities to serve others and to build the kingdom, even if it reduces your income or adds some risk to your future, because you recognize your future is in God's hands. Depend on him and seek his kingdom and righteousness. And then second, don't give all your money away, but give generously. Don't give all your money away, but give generously. Money is not evil, but our love of money is. Giving it away generously while still providing for your own needs helps to keep our love of money in check. If our money really isn't ours, what better way to remember that than to use it for the purposes of the one who really owns it. I want to finish with a special comment for the students who are listening. You probably don't have a job. And even if you do, you probably aren't what the world calls rich. Your parents might be, but you aren't. So applying some of these ideas to your life will be more difficult, less obvious, but it is a perfect time for you to develop the mentality and habits, even if on a smaller scale, of a healthy relationship with money, so that no matter how much money you have in your life, you'll be faithful. Thank you for joining us in this last episode of 2020. It's been quite a journey through an extraordinary year. I hope our consideration of sacred and secular has given you a new perspective on God's creation and our lives in God's good and sacred world. Don't allow the stain of sin to keep you from seeing the beauty of God's design and purpose. Enjoy what's left of 2020. See you in 2021.